0: Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church whose mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Today's podcast is focused on one of the 12 steps of AA. John Glenn taught the 12 steps to the church because Alpha Ministries contends that all people need recovery from something. And the 12 steps is the best program out there and most closely reflects the idea of discipleship and relationship jesus had in mind enjoy and glean from the message and remember one day at a time step seven
1: humbly ask god to remove all our character defects all our shortcomings, all our wrongs. Step seven is the completion of this package we were talking about. When I introduced step four to you, I said it was a package of steps. Actually, steps four, five, six, and seven go together. And step seven is the ultimate completion. I want you to notice what the step actually is asking for. It is actually asking God To do something for us, something we can't do for ourselves, and that is to remove, to send away. The biblical term for that is to forgive our shortcomings, our character defects, our wrongs, everything that we've identified in the fourth step as what has been wrong with not ourselves. Now let's not deny the gospel here, As we go on to step seven. We're not asking him to remove things from ourselves per se. We're asking God to remove the shortcomings, the failures, the dysfunction, the sin, the wrongs, the character defects of our flesh. Let me start again on step seven by reminding you that in step four we learned about the fact that there is a difference, a radical difference between the new person God has made us to be, and the leftover remnants of who we used to be in Adam called the flesh. There's a radical difference between those two. It's the difference between light and darkness. It's the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness, between godliness and ungodliness, between health, functionality, and dysfunction. There's a radical difference between the flesh and the new person God has made us to be. The reason we're doing this package of steps, steps four, five, six, and seven, is because the flesh with all of its power, all of its habit, all of its false beliefs, all of its destructive emotions, all of its unrighteous behavior, that flesh is so powerful a force in these physical bodies of ours, that like Paul said in his fifth step, when I want to do what's right, I can't do it. When I'm going to quit doing what's wrong, I do it anyhow. In other words, the flesh had control of the new person he was. So much so as he actually presented that. Remember in Romans 7 we talked about the fact that he presented himself as a POW, a prisoner of war, if you will, to his own flesh. It is the flesh, then, that we're asking God to humbly get rid of. Now, step seven, as I said, is a culmination. And let's just look at how these these steps go together as a package, culminating in the seventh step. In step four, we've identified objectively what it is that's wrong, that needs to be dealt with. Now, we took pains to make sure that we didn't impose that responsibility on ourselves even as a brand new person, even as a brand new creature in Christ, we still do not have the power in and of ourselves to deal with our own flesh. So we just objectively lay out what it is that needs to be dealt with. Step five, we confess to God, we agree with God, Speak the same thing. That's what the word confess means. It means, literally it comes from the Greek word homo legao, which means to speak the same thing. We confess to God, to another human being, as well as to ourselves, the exact nature of our wrongs. In other words, we're going to get in some detail. Now, you remember when we studied step seven, we, we asked the question, well, why do I have to tell somebody else about this? Why can't it just be between me and God? You know, God knows, and to deal with it anyhow. Why do I have to get, why do I have to talk with someone else? And I gave you two reasons, so I'll just remind you of them very quickly. The first is because when you speak to another person, you have to formulate your thoughts and your understanding, your insights, into words. And that slows your whole thought process down so that you can be meticulous and detailed about it. And it also allows you to hear yourself thinking about those character defects. The reason that's so important is because the first and greatest symptom of all addictions, no matter what f- what flavor they are, the first and greatest symptom is denial. We actually deny that we have any problems. When it comes to doing the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh step, that's where that problem of denial really kicks in. Because we want to deny any wrongdoing on our part. We want to deny and protect that flesh naturally wants to deny anything that's wrong. Well, When you speak it out to another human being you break that denial process and with that you're breaking a lot of defense, what psychologists would call defense mechanisms. That is the tendency to minimize, to rationalize, to justify, as well as deny the wrongs or the character defects that we want to get rid of. Speaking it out to another person also is for their sake. And by this I mean the example that Paul gives us, for instance, in Romans chapter 7, where he actually tells us of this intense inward struggle that he's got. He, he uses a very graphic, very strong language in Romans 7, To express how intense this conflict was that was going on inside of him. That's not just for his sake, that's also for our sake. We now, thousands of years later, can read his quote, fifth step right there in chapter 7 of Romans and recognize and identify ourselves with him in his struggle. You see the great equalizing factor of the gospel is not only does everybody receive the same righteousness, that is the righteousness of Christ, but everybody has the same stinking flesh. Even though we might distinguish uh, one flesh from another, it's all the same. It's all dysfunctional. And when we speak it out to another human being, we not only encourage ourselves breaking through our denial and defensive processes, but we also encourage others about their their issues and their dealings with their flesh as well. So in step 4 we objectively identify the wrongs and the shortcomings character defects. Step 5 we confess it to God and another human being. That brings us to step 6 where we become entirely ready, entirely ready to have God remove these character defects. Now It's real important that I emphasize again with you, like we did in step six, that we're not always entirely ready to have God remove them. And one of the reasons for that is we have adapted our life and our lifestyle to our character defects. As a matter of fact, we have a tendency to use them to cope with life. We build coping strategies around some of our character defects, and we really don't want to let it go. Let's take one of the most common uh, character defects that plagues the whole human race. All of us have to deal with it to one degree or another. One of the most common character defects of our flesh is hatred. When anyone disappoints you or hurts you in any way, much less seeks to abuse you, Your natural response in the flesh is not just simply anger. It may start out anger for 30 seconds or so, but immediately it will become hatred. This is why the scripture, by the way, tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. What he's really saying is if you go to bed mad at someone, you're gonna wake up hating them. That anger is gonna degenerate into hatred. Now, hatred, we know, is a character defect. We know it is a wrong. We know it is a shortcoming. And we all know the terrible consequences of hatred in regards to our relationship with others, but also the high cost of hatred to ourselves through various psychosomatic disorders. Nine times out of ten, the person you hate doesn't even know you're hating them. They're not affected at all by your hatred. Unless you do or say something to them directly, you can hate them for years and they wouldn't even know it. It wouldn't have any impact on them. But the hatred would have a detrimental impact on you. The The emotional condition of hatred It will actually put your body in an alarm stage reaction, which will actually, over a period of time, lead to such symptoms as peptic ulcers, ulcerative colitis, hives, all kinds of rashes, skin disorders, increased blood pressure, risk of heart attack, all kinds of medical problems stem from bottled up, pent up, prolonged hatred. So why wouldn't we want to let that go? Why wouldn't we want to be entirely ready to have God remove our hatred? Why would we want to kind of hang on to that a little bit? Well, hatred not only hurts us and is to our detriment physically, emotionally, relationally, and so on, but it can also be used to help us. As a matter of fact, one of the primary ways naturally that we get over our fears our anxieties or our worries is to get mad if you get mad you don't have time to worry you don't have time to be afraid you can actually utilize the emotion of hatred to move you out of that paralyzed emotional paralysis of the approach avoidance syndrome where you want to do it but you're afraid you'll fail so you back off and you don't do it but when you back off you want to do it again but you don't do it because you're afraid you might fail so you back off and you get paralyzed, stuck in that what's called an approach avoidance. In order to get over that you get mad and out comes that hatred that actually motivates you. Hatred is also used to justify all sorts of hideous acts towards others. As a matter of fact the long-standing feuds between individuals or even nations in terms of wars are stim stimulated by prolonged hatred. We see that effect right now in our world in the modern-day jihad that is going on, stemming from hatred of abuses over generations for years. That hatred leads to destructive actions and and the idea that You can somehow get even. You can somehow balance it out by hurting others who have hurt you. In the Alpha Series, again, I'll refer you to the the hurt-hate-hurt cycle that is perpetuated from generations to generations. People who get hurt naturally hate. And when they hate, they hurt others. And when those others get hurt, they in turn hate. And when they hate, they hurt back and it turns into what I call a hurt-hate-hurt cycle that keeps uh, prolonging itself in generation after generation. When you adapt to that, if you're stuck in a hurt-hate-hurt cycle and you learn to live with that, you begin to adapt to it, you utilize that hatred as a tool for your survival and utilizing that hatred, you don't want to let go of it. So step six says we're entirely ready to have God remove these character defects. We're not always entirely ready for that because of the beliefs that we've held for so long that somehow these various character defects, there's a payoff in it for us. Another classic example of that is found in what's known as the victim mentality. There are those folks who portray themselves as a victim of one sort or another. They will go seek help because they are victims. They will present themselves as being helpless, as being unable to really get the job done or achieve whatever needs to be done to assume responsibilities because they've been victimized in some fashion or some form. Another name for this is the martyr. Those folks who actually view themselves as a martyr who are suffering justly or unjustly for a particular cause or reason. They're reluctant to let go of that that self-pity as a victim because they are receiving an emotional payoff. They have actually identified themselves as a victim. So they refuse actually to get better, to actually improve their situation because they are, they're afraid they'll lose their victim status. Now kind of a classic example of, of, of that uh, occurs in a welfare mentality, or in a welfare state, where if you go to work, and actually become responsible and find a job and go to work and make money, you lose your welfare check. You see, that's you can no longer receive a welfare check, support, if you're working. So many people with a victim mentality says, well, I can't really find the job I want. I can't really get the job I need, when really what they're wanting to do is to avoid the responsibility of working and have someone else take care of them. That mentality is a victim mentality that will prohibit them from step six. Step six says you are entirely ready to have God remove your shortcomings, your wrongs. And we're not always entirely ready if we're hanging on to those shortcomings or we're hanging on to those wrongs or we're hanging on to those character defects because they are giving us some sort of emotional payoff, some sort of value that we consider to be necessary for us. So when you reach step six, you're, you're becoming entirely ready. You have to be understanding exactly what those character defects are doing to you. In order to help us get entirely ready, as we studied before, we need to honestly look at what those character defects or what we've identified generically and generally as the flesh, what it actually does to us. What the flesh actually does to us is leads us to death on various levels. What these character defects do to us ultimately is bring death into our lives. What these shortcomings do is destroy us in the form of one form of death or another. Now, there are many kinds of death. I'll just outline a couple here that, that we need to be entirely ready to let go of. And that is the first and, and most serious form of death is not the physical death that we all naturally think of when we think of death. There's many other ways to die, in some senses the worse ways to die than to die physically. There's the personal death that most people are suffering terribly from. A personal death is what psychologists or psychiatrists would call a neurosis or a psychosis. They're a personal death, that in which the individual, the person, actually sees themselves as being less worthy than they really are. From that personal death comes all sorts of emotional symptoms, whether it be hatred or it be self pity or it be anxiety those emotional symptoms will take a toll on us physically and we will experience a limited physical death in the various parts of our bodies because of that but beyond that when we have a personal death we also encounter relational death no one likes to hang out with people who are either full of hate and are critical all the time or they're whining and feeling sorry for themselves all the time, or they're nervous and anxious and antsy all the time, that harms our relationships. so that personal death naturally leads to a relational death as well, not only in the family, in the case of divorce and marriage, but also a relational death in terms of our friends and our friendships and our ability to relate to others in the community in a healthy way. Finally, we can also experience a social death. A social death is when society as a whole says, that's enough. We don't want you around us anymore, and they lock you away in an institution of some sort. Be it a prison or another type of institution to keep you off the streets, away from society. That's social death, personal death, personal death. These are all a consequence of hanging on to the character defects, hanging on to the wrongs and the shortcomings. Even though they might give us temporary payoffs emotionally, even though they might justify our actions or our irresponsibilities on a temporary basis, ultimately they will lead to one form of death or another. So when we've come to step six, then we've said we're entirely ready. That brings us to seven in which we can do the only thing that's possible for us to do, and that's to humbly ask God to remove it. Now again, as we stated back in the fourth step, it's not our responsibility to change our defects. It's not our responsibility to get rid of the flesh. You cannot change your flesh in one to one degree. You cannot remove one shortcoming. You cannot compensate for or overcome one character defect. Only God can do that. Only God can change the individual. Now that also, by the way, tells us something else we need to know, and that's about changing other people. If we can't change ourselves, imagine how absurd it is to think that we can change somebody else. We cannot change ourselves. We're not responsible to change ourselves. We need to identify we need to be changed. We ask God humbly to change us. He's the only one that has the power to radically, drastically change us. But how does he do that? How does he actually change us? In order for you to humbly ask him, you've got to have some somewhat of an idea in your mind of how he's going to do it. You kind of got to anticipate it a little bit. You may not need to know all the details of what he does. In fact, I I don't believe anybody really knows all the details of how God specifically changes people, but you need to have in your mind um, an idea of how God is going to do that. Otherwise you won't humbly ask him to do it. And here's the common fallacy that I want to guard against. People will refuse to ask God to change them for one reason and one reason only. That that is, they actually believe that his changing them is going to hurt them somehow. The reason they think that God changing them is going to hurt them, is going to cause them some kind of pain or some kind of difficulty is twofold. Number one, they identify themselves with their flesh. They fail to make that distinction we made back in Step 4 between their real self, a new person in Christ, and their stinking flesh. Identifying themselves with their flesh, they think if God is going to remove their shortcoming, He's going to hurt their flesh, obviously that means He's going to hurt them. That means He's going to get them somehow. God is going to do something to them. No, he's not going to do something to you. He's going to do something to your flesh. He's going to change it. He's going to send it away. He's going to forgive it. He's going to radically, drastically get rid of it. But not you. So a better way to look at it, rather than to think that, oh, it's somehow this is going to be painful to me, it's going to hurt me because I'm identified with the, f- with the flesh, a better way to look at humbly asking him to change you humbly asking him to remove these character defects is humbly asking him to set you free. That's really what it means. What it means is the seventh step is you're asking for true freedom. You're asking God to actually set you free to be the person he's made you to be. This doesn't mean that that you're going to be somebody else. This means that you're going to be the person that he's made you to be without distraction. You see, what God is going to get rid of with you is your flesh, not you. And when he gets rid of that flesh, you are going to be able to blossom. Let me try to diagram this on the board for you so you all can, can get an idea of what I'm talking about here as a progression, because I want you to see what you're doing when you humbly ask God to remove these character defects. I want you to see his methodology so that you know what to expect, so that you're not just taking an irrational leap in the dark like existential philosophers would have you to do. Your faith is actually rational here. You're asking for God to do a special work in you to set you free. Going back to our diagram, the circle representing the body, and this little triangle in the center representing the new man you are, you're surrounded by all this flesh, all this shortcomings, all this character defects, all these wrongs you're surrounded by that is actually encapsulating and imprisoning the real person you are, the real person God has made you to be. Now think about this, the real person you are, this little triangle in here is represented on the board, This new person you are is just like Christ. You're joined inseparably to him. You're one with him. You think like him. You act like him. You walk like him. You feel like him. You're just like Christ, this new person you are. But surrounding this new person you are is all this character defects, all this flesh. When you do step seven, you are humbly asking God to remove this flesh. So this new person you are can actually be free. Can actually express itself unhindered. Now how does God do that? Well, I need to add a third person to this diagram here to to help you understand the methodology that God uses to send this away, to remove these character defects inside of this new person that you are. God has put the Spirit of His Son. I call it the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of His Son, Jesus, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is living inside this new person that you are. When God removes your character defects, we naturally get the idea. I know I did when I first read the seventh step. I first heard about Him removing the character defects. I got this idea. I've got all this all this stuff in me all this junk conditioning that I've had experiences good bad and ugly that made up the natural person that I am and I got this idea that there's part of me right here that God wants to get rid of because it's particularly nasty I've identified it and I said okay I got this little glob of hatred here so I got this idea that the way that he does that when I humbly ask him to remove it what he does is somehow Supernaturally, he reaches in there. He grabs that glob of hatred and he rips it out Rips it away from me and it leaves a hole there and that's gonna hurt You know, I kind of put it on a a childhood fear I had whenever I got a splinter and I would be afraid to tell My parents that I got the splinter in my hand or in my leg or because I didn't want them poking around on it because it was going to hurt. In order for them to get rid of that mess, they were going to have to dig around in it, and I didn't want to do that. I've, I'd been done been through that one time, so there are a lot of times I get a splinter, and I say, uh, I'm, "I'm just going to live with that. I ain't going to mess with this. You know, I'll just, I'll, I'll put up with the pain of it. I'll do whatever I got to do to live with it. And besides that, I might use it to get some sympathy from somebody sometime, or to get me out of work. So. You know, I just think of a character defect as a little splinter in your flesh like that. And so naturally we're afraid to have God remove it. Even though we know that technically oh, i would probably be better if he removed it. Ultimately, uh, technically I would be better if I got rid of that splinter. I'm really reluctant to do so because I'm afraid that it might hurt. God, I don't want you to think of him removing character defects in that fashion. That is a wrong way to approach it. That's a misnomer. That's not how God works to remove character defects from us. It's the same kind of mentality that betrays toxic faith in the way people become born again in the first place. And you may have experienced this yourself or you may know of someone that's gone through this kind of experience where they were actually scared, frightened into a relationship with God. They were scared into salvation. Well, how'd you scare them? Well, you threaten them. What do you threaten them with? Well, you threaten them with everlasting torment in hell, whatever that is. If you don't believe and be converted, you're going to die and go to hell forever. Now, who wants to go to hell forever? Nobody wants to go to hell forever. It'd be ridiculous to go to hell forever when you don't have to. Nobody would want that. That's a terrible picture. And some of the pictures and conceptions over the years throughout history of hell have been some of the worst horrifying images you can imagine. And it creates a great deal of fear in us. Well, that fear actually blocks authentic faith and produces a toxic faith. And so there are many people that are not really in love with God. They're just trying to kiss his butt so he won't send them to hell. They don't really have a relationship with God, a loving experience with God. They're just trying to avoid his torment, his, punish, his punishment. Well, that's carried over when it comes to having God remove character defects in our lives we got that same idea, which is where we get this idea that's going to hurt. For him to reach in there and grab this character defect out, it's going to hurt me. It's going to be painful. I'm going to have to suffer. On top of that, you add to the fact that by nature we're guilty, and so we, we think we're deserving of it, so we naturally think, of course it's going to hurt. He's going to punish me for a while, and then I'll get better. And so we're afraid of it. Those are the main reasons we're not entirely ready to have him mess with us. We would rather do it ourselves and have God mess with us because we're not sure how he's going to do it. And because of that, we're a little bit afraid it's going to hurt. Well, in order to counter that, I want to give you this idea. It is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. The goodness of God. It's his love. It's which is his character that causes us to change our thinking That leads to salvation It's not the fear of God The fear of God leads to religion the goodness of God leads to repentance What do we mean by that? We mean that? God is going to do something that's good for us that can be perceived as good for us that is not bad for us and is going to cause us pain and hurt, but is good for us It's going to set us free. Well, how does he do that? Let me show you on the board a representation of how he accomplishes this. The very first thing he's done when he joins you to his son Jesus, the one who joins you to him is a Spirit. The same Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead, brought him forth out of the tomb, God now puts in you, and you Are immersed into Christ, joined to him by that same Spirit. So that same Spirit now is living inside of this new person you are. What that Spirit does to remove the character defects around you is to cause the new person you are to grow in grace and knowledge of your identity in Christ. What does that mean? Well, it represents on this board. Just watch closely. You see what I'm doing here with this triangle? Layer upon layer, precept upon precept, idea upon idea, concept upon concept, you are learning, you are growing, you are developing. What's happening here? The new person you are, that God has made you to be, is growing up. That's why the Bible uses a developmental language to talk about this. You are born as a babe and you mature and you grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. As this new person grows up, look what's happening to the character defects around it. It's displaced from the inside out. See, God never works from the outside in. He always works from the inside out. So how is he going to get rid of your character defects? He's going to displace them with the character of Christ. He is going to cause the character of Christ to come alive in you, the life of Christ Himself, the mind of Christ, to come alive in you, the new person you are. Now another way of visualizing this or thinking about this, I can't really draw it out on the board for you, but another way of thinking about this is the way that God changes you is into the same image as Christ he takes you from glory to glory by his spirit working in you to make you conforming you to be more like Christ more evident that you are one with Christ now what does that how does that translate out in our everyday experience what that means is when Humbly ask him to remove our character defects. What he does is he magnifies the character of Christ in us a Simple way perhaps oversimplified of describing this is what I heard a fellow tell me one time. He says you know my prayers are I've i have gone to God and I said God I want to be like Jesus and then he caught himself and he said I need you to change my want-to's. See you got to work inside and change my want-to's. I want to be like Jesus, but I want to kill this person over here. <laughs> okay. I want to be like Jesus, but you know I want to get involved in all this dysfunctional behavior. I need you to change my want-to's. Change me from the inside. Change my want-to's away from that which is dysfunctional to that which is healthy and like Jesus. See, what God does, in essence, through His Spirit, working in your heart, in your mind, in the new person you are, He gives you a new set of want-tos. He gives you things to be excited about you thought you would never be excited about. I'll never forget the first time I ever really experienced this, uh, to any, any great degree, is how excited I was to actually study the Bible. This became a phenomenal thing to me. It just blew me away. So I'd gone to school and I was a student of psychology. I was a student of biology. I kind of enjoyed as much as possible studying subjects like genetics and all that sort of thing. And I would get into it a little bit enough at least to pass the test get the degree go on my education etc but i was never really that excited about it i was more excited about partying than i was studying to be honest with you but when it came to studying the bible i heard this said of an old-time preacher one time a long time ago an old guy that he's been dead for many years now but but my dad actually asked him, and I heard this from my own ears as a little kid, and it blew me away. He actually asked him, what do you do for recreation? You know, I'm thinking hunting, fishing, you know, running around. I grew up in Colorado, so I'm thinking going in the mountains, you know, doing this, that, and the other. And this old guy said, I study the Bible. And I thought, man, this is weird. Now, you talk about dysfunctional. That is dysfunctional. You study the Bible? Yeah, that's what I do for recreation. I like it. I enjoy it. I want to do it. And I got, it, just, it was just wide over my head. I mean, that, nothing about that computed with me at all at the time. And I'll never forget when it actually happened to me. When I actually found myself glued to the Bible. This had been after college, after a whole bunch of other experiences in my adult life. I actually was glued to the Bible for three days one time. Three days, day and night, glued to it. Couldn't get away from it. Studied it. It it was like watching a movie when I read about the life of Jesus. It wasn't studying in the sense that we think of studying, it was much deeper than that. What happened? My want to's changed. Who changed it? I didn't change him. God changed him. What did he do? He put a desire in my heart. And it gave me new understanding and meaning to the promise, the Old Testament promise, that God gives you the desires of your heart. I used to think, oh, what what that means is anything I want, God's going to give it to me. So give me a new truck. I'd like a new truck. Oh, God's going to give me the desire of my heart. He's going to give me a new truck. No, that's not what he's talking about as I sadly discovered later. (laughs) That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that he was going to give me new desires. He was going to give me a desire to do something, to be somewhere, to go somewhere that I had never had a desire to do before. He was going to change my want-tos. So I'm not faking it. When I want to do something, I'm not faking it anymore. Why? Because he's changed my desires. You see, I here, years ago, I had a desire to get drunk. I mean, this was a big thing. I looked forward to it. I planned it. I made my plans on it. I scheduled for it. I set aside money for it. Marked out the calendar for it. Set up ahead of time. This is when I'm going to get drunk. It's coming. I know it's coming. I look forward to it. I had a desire for it. God changed my desire. He changed it. I didn't change it. He changed it. You see, what God does is he gives you the desires of your heart. So he changes you radically from the inside When you do step seven and you humbly ask God to remove your shortcomings, that sounds negative. He's going to remove something. That means he's going to extract something. And because we've grown accustomed to our shortcomings and we've coddled them and we've justified and rationalized them we've used them to some extent we get this idea immediately Ooh, him removing my shortcomings is not going to be comfortable this is not going to be a good thing for me This is going to hurt somehow this is going to bug me this is not going to be good the truth is the way he removes our shortcomings is to fill us up with the fullness of his son To fill us up with the fullness of Christ. Because we want what he wants. He gives us the new want-to's. Now, this process, changing us from the inside out, is not going to go away. Many people make this serious mistake when they study the steps. They say, well, I'm on step seven now. And they count them up. That means I only got five more to go And they keep counting the days when they get to step 12 now. I've done the steps. I'm done Let me caution you against that What we're describing here called recovery According to the 12 steps is not an event It's not a place where you say okay, I've arrived I'm done It is a process, a lifelong process. So ultimately, what's going to happen is that as we grow continuously, day in and day out, from the inside out, God changing our want-to's, causing this new person that we are to be more and more conformed to the image of His Son, there's less and less the shortcomings that are visible. Oh, they're still there. Don't ever get the idea that you got most of them covered because about the time you get the idea that most of them are covered, you'll fall into the trap of David. You remember King David who wrote the 51st Psalm about steps four, five, six, and seven. 51st Psalm is really a uh, steps that 4, 5, 6, and 7 put in Biblical language that King David wrote and after he, as a king now, he was a king of Israel, a man after God's own heart had reigned in Israel for 20 years. We're talking about a mature man. We're not talking about a kid. We're talk, talking about a novice. We're not talking about a babe in Christ. We're talking about a mature man of God, a warrior king, after 20 years fell prey to adultery, perjury, murder. After 20 years of being this full-grown adult child of God. So don't ever get the idea that you're going to arrive It's like Abraham, after miraculously being delivered by God year after year after receiving the promised child, the miraculous birth of his son, Isaac, who was 100 years old. After all the tremendous victories in his life, Abraham pulled the same shenanigans he did as a youngster about his wife, Sarah, lied about her being his sister to another king. Don't ever get the idea that you've arrived in your recovery. Because we're all in a process of recovery. It's not an event. It's a process. And that process is what we learn to get comfortable with. That process is led and empowered by God himself. And that process is experienced in our lives as that which is good. Which is appealing. Because our want-to's change, our desires change. But this process is going to go on our whole life. One day, at our own death or the rapture, when Jesus comes back, this body, this physical body that we live in, this earthly house, tabernacle, as the Bible calls it, will be dissolved go back to dust. it's taken out of dust, it'll go back to dust. When it does, the flesh will spill out. It's gone. And the only thing that remains is that new person we are in Christ. But it's not without a body. As a matter of fact, the scripture is very clear about this. We have right now reserved for us in heaven, in the heavenlies, a body not made with hands, not fashioned by human beings through creation or procreation. A body reserved for us in the heavenlies fashioned like that of Jesus' resurrection body that will match that new person you are. A body that's free of the flesh. Total recovery. Until that time, we're doing these steps of a lifestyle of recovery. Until that time, we're going to continue to take searching, fearless moral inventory, identifying our character defects. Until that time, we're going to confess them to God. And one another, to ourselves. Until that time, we're going to be entirely ready to have God intervene. Until that time, we're going to humbly ask Him to remove those character defects. We're going to grow in grace and knowledge. So steps four, five, six, and seven are an integral part. they their placement right smack dab in the middle of the 12 steps. They're an integral part of our recovery. It's not something to be feared, it's not something to be shunned away from, it's not something to hide, it's something to be celebrated. The fact that we can do a moral inventory, objectively identifying the shortcomings and character defects of our flesh. We can humbly ask God to remove them, and He does. And He gives us that desire, the brand new desire, changing our want-to's to be free, to be like his son jesus you see the most exhilarating exciting lifestyle you'll ever know is that of a lifestyle of recovery recovery from that flesh so we're going to quit here for tonight with the seventh step and that brings us now to our our next step the eighth step where we turn the corner what i call turning the corner and we actually now start thinking about our relationships to others. You see the first three steps talked about our relationship to God. These next four steps talk about our relationship to ourselves. Now we're going to turn the corner and talk about our relationship to others. So we'll do that with steps eight and nine. All right, we're going to quit.
0: Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook subscribe to our YouTube channel and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes.